is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome. This is Detailing Addiction. I'm Dr. Susan Blank. Today in studio, I have with me Alice Wellens, a licensed clinical social worker, and I have David Donaldson, who's the CEO of the Atlanta Healing Center. We are here to discuss, um, actually to start a four-part series of discussions about addiction and attachment disorders. Now, this may sound like, okay, snooze fest, let's turn off the radio right now, but I would ask you to please not do that because I think that this is truly of such a very important part of the treatment and understanding the disease of addiction and the aftermath that is often the work that needs to be done once a person's been detoxed, once a person's been medically stabilized and begun on their journey of recovery, looking at the way in which they struggle with relationships within themselves, their own self-esteem, the role that the drugs and alcohol or behaviors have played in their increasing isolation and shame and guilt over their disease of addiction, the way in which their relationships with their spouses or their significant others have been affected, the way in which their relationship with their parents or with their children have been affected. So what we're going to talk about over the next few weeks is this whole idea of attachment and the role that it plays in the recovery and the healing from the disease of addiction. So I'd like to really thank Alice for joining us today. She has a wonderful practice here in Atlanta. She specializes in working with folks who have the disease of addiction, but also with couples and individuals who are dealing with relationship issues. And so she really is an expert on these attachment disorders. And David does a lot of work at the Atlanta Healing Center with our families and with um, spouses and significant others to help them as they're trying to cope through the early stages of recovery. So thank you both for being here and being willing to to attack this um, really interesting topic. And in fact, thank you, Alice, for the whole idea of having this series. Thanks for having me back. So um, attachment. Um, I remember back in the olden days in my psychiatric training where we began, there were, there were the battles between the object relations theorists, okay, don't fall asleep, people, um, and between the self-psychologists and the strict Freudian psychoanalytic group and the cohuts and the, um, yes, all of, the, all of the folks that were weighing in at the time before there was a lot of medication available. So therapy really was the way we treated psychiatric disorders and the way that we treated, um, addiction. So having that background in terms of looking at family systems and the way in which an individual experiences themselves in their family and in their community, I think provided a really interesting framework. And that was really the the first time that I was introduced to the work of Bowlby and Winnicott and Kohut and um, other folks that were looking at the role of attachment and how we learn 
our worldview. That's sort of my takeaway, that well before we have verbal language, well before we even have long-term memory, the relationships that we have with our caregivers helps frame the way we're going to have relationships the rest of our lives, whether it's with our boss or our neighbor or our spouse or our children. These relationship ideas and feelings often come very early in life. Well, you know, by the time people are three, their personalities are really quite strongly developed. And whether the world is a wonderful place full of exciting things to learn and experience, or whether the world is a scary place that's not safe and uh, full of really bad things that are going to happen next, that kind of worldview gets developed through our attachment. Is is that your understanding or did I over oversimplify that? No, absolutely. And I want to say to the snooze fest comment, I totally can see how that this would be <laughs> a snooze fest. However, this is truly one of the most exciting dynamic conversations to have in terms of the whole spectrum of addiction, neurobiology, and then the drop-down menu of all the treatment modalities there that are there, everything from medication to treatment to therapy, and then on to meditation and yoga and exercise and all the other kind of cascading ones from there. They all go back and intertwine through the lens of attachment. And so understanding this is just really, it's thrilling in a lot of ways for me. But it's also exciting because it helps the client understand what's happening. It helps them understand their story. And as we've talked about on past radio shows, it, it's very shame reduction. Yes. Shame is the number one barrier from everything from research dollars to treatment. So it helps them just sort of sort of decrease that shame and see it through the lens of this, this story, this narrative which is all part of attachment in and of itself. So it's kind of, it's this whole story we're getting ready to tell is really exciting to me. Well, and and I actually wanted to go back to that snooze fest comment too because, <laughs> um, um, because so often when I'm dealing with family members, um, and, and clients themselves, so much of what they want to know is is what else is, is this besides um, besides alcohol, besides drugs? Why do I keep going back to this? Why do I keep relapsing? And they're always looking for some underlying root cause. Um, and and attachment is definitely a piece of the puzzle. They're having to, to you know, accept that total abstinence is a big part of the equation, but then they're also having to accept that there's aspects of themselves in terms of their ability to connect with others and their ability to relax and be comfortable in among, among groups that they don't really get where that comes from. And, and attachment disorder definitely speaks to a lot of a lot of that. And, and in the addiction field, we'll talk about a lot of these things from the realm of family of origin and family roles, and, and we'll look at... Um, at defense systems and all of these things that people have learned to cope with, but we don't really put it in terms of, of this the- theoretical framework. Yeah. So, so should we jump right in? Yes, please okay. do. Um, so I kind of like to tell the story because I am a therapist and I, I like the narrative and the story. And I think that that also creates meaning and creates connection, which is what attachment is all about. And which is one of the things that we talk about with addiction, you know, what are the things that happen there? Disconnection, disengagement. 
So attachment really came into being with John Bowlby, and I'm not going to go all the way back there, but I think <laughs> it's important to just name him because he mm-hmm. was born in England, and he was raised by a nanny, by that strict British turn-of-the-century family, and his sibling, he and his siblings were raised by a nanny, and that's one of the things that really sparked his interest in that, and that's what makes his story so important to the story of attachment. So his work kind of began, and then Mary Ainsworth came in later mm-hmm. and picked up his work and brought it on. And then Mary Main came after that and sort of added the last piece of work with the disorganized attachment. So it's, it's really been a nice evolution. Um, but the main thing that I think is important to think about when we talk about attachment is attachment is a biological imperative that is rooted in evolutionary necessity. So mm-hmm. if, you know, when you think about an infant being born, they have to have a caregiver or they will die. Right. And exactly. that's, that's the biological imperative and that's the evolution necessity. So it's what happens in that relationship where we really get interested. So you were talking about the preverbal years. So they typically talk about preverbal is zero to eighteen months. Everything that happens during that time is preverbal. So if it's preverbal, where does it go? It's held in the body. Yes. And you will hear addicts and alcoholics and people just talk about, I have this feeling, I have this feeling, and I don't know what to do with it. And it's you know part of what, what informs a relapse or informs my destructive behaviors. Well, a lot of times that feeling could be this preverbal zero to 18 months, which is a, what a lot of Bezel van der Kolk's work is about with trauma therapy and using the body. So it's important to try to get as much information as we can about what was going on during that zero Mm -hmm. to 18 months and what was your attachment figure doing. So there's sort of that layer of it. But there's the other fascinating layer, which research is now validating, of what's actually happening in the shaping of the brain during that time. So you've heard the phrase, the mother's gaze. So when the mother holds her infant and looks at the baby, what's happening? And I think Dr. Blank can probably speak most medically about what's happening. But the brain is the least differentiated organ at birth. Mm-hmm. So, yes, please correct me. If no, I'm you wrong. are absolutely correct. Which means heart, lungs, kidneys, they're all fully developed all and working. They're all fully developed and working. The brain is the least differentiated. And so those early months, what's happening in the, in the environment and with the caregiver are literally shaping the brain. They're literally creating the neural networks inside the brain. And it starts with the amygdala area that is the signal for safety and danger. The amygdala sends the signal to the limbic system of this is safe, this is dangerous. And the mother's gaze and the feeling of safety in an infant from birth, and then a lot of evidence goes all the way to prenatal, um, is, is shaping that and informing that, which is all where addiction lives and all where addiction is sort of trying to work itself out. So those early months are really crucial. They're so important. And I think we've talked before about if you think about how most people hold a newborn baby. Mm-hmm. Now, we just had a, a newborn baby mm-hmm. in our family. Um, so getting to, to spend some time um, with this new little guy um, is is so Wonderful, but just watching behavior of adults around the baby. Mm-hmm. So the baby um, attaches. That's their role. They mm-hmm. attach to the caregiver, whoever's, and that's a skin to skin kind of feeling yeah, and brain to brain. The bonding is the mother's 
attachment to the baby. Mm-hmm. So it, there are two different processes going on, both equally important. When an adult picks up a baby, they almost always pick them up with the baby's head in the crook of their left arm. So the gaze is actually left eye to left eye Mm -hmm. for the baby. And if you think about the amygdala as being our burglar alarm system Mm -hmm. that goes off if we're in danger, the right side of the brain is emotion and nonverbal kinds of things. Left side of our brain is reason, logic, um, sensibility, calming, actually. So if you're developing through your gaze, through the way you hold the baby and look at the baby, you are helping to calm down that burglar alarm system. So holding a child, especially when they're fearful or crying or sad, and having that brain-to-brain connection through the vision, right. left eye to left eye, really helps to soothe the child as much as bouncing or rocking or patting or whatever. Having that skin-to-skin or that warmth in the the embrace, but then also that left eye, left eye uh, visual connection is developing that side of the brain that allows the baby to learn to self-soothe, hopefully. And you hit the magic word there, which we'll come back to, which is the word soothe, because... You know, the disease of addiction is all about self-regulating and self-soothing. It just kind of takes a dog leg left turn to get there. But so we'll definitely, we definitely want that sort of highlighted. Um, And what's happening in that gaze are the neural networks are being Mm -hmm. created then because it's the least differentiated organ at birth. So these neural networks um, are being formed in the brain, which later inform everything about how this baby sees the world and reacts to the world and then later reacts to chemicals. Exactly. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about these nonverbal years or months and learn a little bit more about how the brain develops. Thanks for listening. We'll be right back. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at EHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning at 8 a.m. and listen to The Doctor's Lounge, where you get a private insight into the conversations that doctors have amongst themselves. Join us Thursday, 8 a.m. every week. This is Daryl Pullis inviting you to listen to America's Homegrown Veggie Show right here every Saturday morning at 10 Eastern Time. Great guests, great tips, and valuable information about growing your own vegetables, fruits, and herbs. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend 
but needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back. This is Detailing Addiction on America's Web Radio. I'm Dr. Susan Blank. With me today are Alice Wellens and David Donaldson from the Atlanta Healing Center and from AliceWellens.com. Um, if you are interested in Alice's practice, please check it out. Alice spells her name with a Y, so let's just get that straight off the bat. A-L-Y-C-E-W-E-L-L-O-N-S dot com. And you'll find contact information and other information about the disorders that she treats and the services that she offers. So before break, we were talking about this important time and development where the baby is... Um, uh, firstborn and having these connections with caregivers that are so important in terms of how they shape the baby's worldview and how they shape the baby's um, tendency towards relationships. And we were talking about the brain not being very well developed at this time. <laughs> Certainly it's not. And in fact, it's not ever completed until someone's in their late 20s. So this is a long, long process. And there are many opportunities along the way for this to get straightened out or to go really off um, off the path. And these early, early experiences are so important. And the, the, the attachment to the caregiver makes such a big difference. And it's often without intention or even knowledge or understanding on the part of the caregiver um, the role that they are playing. And it's not always parents that, That's as, right. as you gave the example of John Bowlby, um, where his attachment figure was his nanny. And, you know, so it doesn't have to be parents. It doesn't have to be mom. It doesn't have to be dad. But we pray that there's somebody there. Right, right. So we could have hours of conversation on that, which, <laughs> you know, call me if you want to do that. I'd be glad to do it. It's fascinating to me. But for our purposes today, it might be important for us to sort of recap. There are four attachment styles that were born out of all this work. Um, Three were born um, kind of in the 60s, and then 20 years later, Mary Main came along and added one more based on all the same data and footage that the first three would you explain that to yeah. people? Because I think that's such an interesting series of experiments, as we agreed would never probably get approved these days, but very intensive observation of mothers and babies. So in 1963, Mary Ainsworth and her team did a, a series of experiments that was termed the strange situation or stranger situation. And they took 26 mothers and they did... Um, 18 four-hour 
visits with each mother. So they had a lot of footage. And what they did is they would have the mother and the child, I think, I can't remember the age, but it was sort of, it was probably like six months to three or four, somewhere in there. And they would have the mother and the child play, and then they would have the mother leave the room, and they would observe what happened there with the child. And then they would have a stranger come into the room, and they would observe how the child responded, and then they would have the stranger leave, and then they would have the mother come back in. And so some variations on that. And what they were trying to see is how does the, how does the child get basically soothing from the mother? So they came up with these three styles of attachment. The first one is secure, and the general definition of that is that they felt like the child felt an equal ability to explore and return mm-hmm. to the safe, safe, secure object. Um, and they would get soothing if when they returned, and they would get the freedom, you know, to go and roam. So that was that's a secure attachment. And the words we look for or we might see in adults with that are they have a lot of flexibility, they have a lot of resilience, um, they they kind of just feel safe and secure in the world. The one of the interesting ones for our purposes is avoidant. What they noticed with the avoidant babies is that they had a blase um, presentation. So mother coming and going, stranger coming and going, they didn't really react much. They were more blasé about it. But what they, what they registered is their heart rate went up, their cortisol levels went up. So they had all these distress reactions, but they were not showing it. And these are children. These are not our children. These are babies. These are babies. And so that is a really, they had learned somewhere along the way for whatever or many reasons that if there is something dangerous or unsafe going on, don't show it. Don't react. And what, what then happens is, is they don't ask for help, you know, later on in life. Um, so and they learn to stuff feelings and, mm-hmm. um, and avoid. And often the parent in that role is, um, n- does not appear to be aware of the child's emotional distress and sometimes even rebuffs the child if the child appears too needy or crying or whiny they they go play or go right. go away um, basically um, and so uh, under the guise I think of I'm, I'm helping my child be independent so you right. go you go play um, missing the point that sometimes the child needs the message. It's okay to go play and explore, but if you're scared, I'm here and I will. Right. I will hold you. I will Comfort soothe you. And it takes a, a few seconds to yeah. do that, and then the child's off and running. But these children that have not experienced that invitation to come and I will soothe you. That um, you know, you're you're on your own here, kid. Um, they develop this very avoidant style and. The world is not a safe place. No one's safe. That's right. And the work... Oh, go ahead. Well, what I was going to say, what's interesting for me listening to this, talking about that child in particular, um, is that when we're, when we're talking about dysfunctional roles in a, in a family system, we'll often talk about the lost child mm-hmm. who's 
up in their room listening to music, headphones on, not bothering anybody. And we'll talk about how for the mother, this child was actually a relief. Right. Because that's the one child she didn't have to worry about. She knew where he was. She knew what what he was doing. And she didn't have to concern herself any Mm -hmm. further than that. Right. And that's a good point because we do talk (coughs) about, you know, family roles and addiction. That's a big core piece of the family's healing. Also... In this work, a lot of times they also talk about the mother's attachment style informs the child, how they parent. And and so if the mother did not get the Mm -hmm. ability to return to the safe base and learn to be soothed and comforted and nurtured, then she doesn't really have the capacity or didn't get it developed to do that for her child. So there's a generational component to this as well. It's not a predictor, but it's just a, a very interesting component of it. Well, and, and so much circumstantial. Yes. Um, there, I remember a study where the family had moved from um, the place where they had lived all their lives to, to a small town in Texas, and the, the mom in this family situation never developed new friends, never adapted, and the children that were young at the time of the move had a totally different mother than the mother that had lived in the town where she had grown up. Right. So her circumstance impacts the ability to be able to mother. Right. And the postpartum depression and even the postpartum psychosis can often be very devastating, um, obviously to the mother, but um, to the child as well. Mm -hmm. So I think many obstetricians and pediatricians are much more alert to there may be situational Problems that are causing this detachment, if you will, this not bonding with the child. There may be medical, metabolic reasons, and it's really important to address those very early on right. uh, for the sake of the mother, the other children, and especially this child. Right. It's a powerful thing. It, it is. It really is. The other two were, were, were ambivalent attachment, and that, that you would see them vacillate between an angry um, reaction to mother coming and going, stranger coming and going, or a passive. So they'd kind of flip-flop back and forth. Um, they would they would explore, but they would be very preoccupied with where's the mother and what's going on. Um, they would be distressed, and upon the mother's return, they would vacillate between an overture for connection and then also a rejecting. Um, so a lot of times you see the I hate you, don't leave me mm-hmm. there. Um and you know, and then twenty years later, Mary Main came along, and she reviewed that all that footage, and she found that there was a ten second um, window in a lot of the footage where the child would show these primitive reactions, but then immediately transition into some of the other more normal reactions, and it would be like the hand over the mouth, the primal scream. Um, or collapsing onto the floor, but then getting back up. And those people, that that category was labeled um, disorganized attachment. And you might see some of those people later become psychotic or have some of those types of issues. So those are basically the four theories, the four styles of attachment that we think about when we start to talk about attachment theory. And it's really important. I remember um, working in a nursery at church, mm-hmm. and um, the services would last for an hour and a half, and the parents would drop the, the young toddlers off. And to watch that mm-hmm. um, drop-off and reunion was, a, you know, all of these you could just see. You could see the child that would just 
completely lose it when the parent left and, you know, throwing themselves on the ground and kicking, screaming, crying, and really not able to kind of soothe. soothe. Mm -hmm. Um, You'd see the one that would kind of throw themselves down, cry for a minute, play, play, play. The parents would come back to pick them up, and the kid would walk up and slap their parents. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. mad, because suddenly now they remembered that they got lost. They were fine in the interim. And then you'd see the, the child that would be happy, you know, not would be happy to come and play with the kids and happy to see their parents. And then you'd see the kid that just really didn't seem to react at all in in any kind of way. So it was very interesting. I didn't know what I was seeing, but I remember (laughs) seeing it very clearly acting acted out. And how the parent responded was also very interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. And so I think our next segment we should really talk about how does all this fold into the conversation on addiction and then how does all this inform uh, treatment and recovery and what we need to do about it. So please stay tuned. We'll be right back. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Whether cruising the Strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. With all the back and forth in today's politics, it seems as though the Constitution gets lost in the mix. If you want to brush up on your Constitution, then join Michael Conley every Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. for the show Our Constitution on AmericasWebRadio.com. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back. 
This is Detailing Addiction. I'm Dr. Susan Blank, along with Alice Wellens and David Donaldson. Today we are doing the first of a four-part series on attachment and addiction. Um, We've been reviewing some of the different attachment styles and some of the important researchers and writers and theorists um, who have explored this um, in general for psychiatry, psychology. So this work is used in all aspects of therapeutic interventions, not specifically for addiction. But I think let's let's turn to the disease of addiction and um, particularly the person with the disease of addiction their attachment style can be very important and important to recognize and understand as someone working with them or as a family member, loved one of this individual. Yeah. So, right, let's jump over into that. Um, So all that you just heard us talking about is really sort of creating this scenario where you have somebody who had some attachment disruptions and for lots of reasons, some we know, some we might not know, they have a sense of heightened dysregulation that they might not even know about. So we're talking about, you know, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, kind of those years, or in even earlier. And they, because of all that we talked about with the amygdala and the neural networks and all of that, they're ability to feel safe and secure in the world, their ability to sort of soothe themselves, to know that they can be soothed, all that slowly over time didn't get as developed um, as it could have been. So, and this is where you guys can really jump in because we hear this every day, all the time. So that person is now in adolescence, and that is where they call that perfect storm begins to happen. Yes. Their hormones are starting to kind of start to rage. Their exposure to alcohol, to drugs, to self-harming behaviors start to increase. Their peer groups become the most important thing in the world. And so all these things start to develop, and they use. And what's the first thing that we hear somebody say when they start to tell their story of using? (laughs) Uh, we could all be in a different state, and we could get this right. <laughs> I felt normal. For the first time, I felt normal. I had somebody say that today. Mm. For the first time, I felt normal. Okay, so in this conversation, through the lens of these conversations we've been having today, what does that mean to us? Well, it means in, in many ways the the substance or the behavior has resulted in a relief of mm-hmm. some of the symptoms of some of the anxiety or mm-hmm. some of the fear it has numbed them out to some of the anxiety mm-hmm. whatever state they were in it has made it better exactly that's i mean it, that's it and they they don't consciously know that. Rarely do they consciously know that's happening. They just know they feel better. And they also know that they can start to interact with their peers, what they feel like is better. And that's all about connection. And so there's this sense for them of, I feel normal, meaning I don't feel anxious, I don't feel dysregulated, I don't feel unsafe. I, whatever it is that's conscious or unconscious that they're experiencing and have been experiencing in the world, maybe since birth. 
So it's this powerful, powerful thing. Plus, it's highly addictive. Right. (laughs) And I think that this is where I will probably disagree a little bit with um, with some of our writers mm-hmm. and some of the researchers in the sense that it's my opinion and understanding that the disease of addiction is a genetically inherited disease. Mm-hmm. That um, attachment uh, problems certainly create a vulnerability that will generate for the individual a desire um to feel better and an experience. And again, it may not even be conscious that there's anything that will make them feel better, but mm-hmm. they experience drugs or behavior. Um, there are other folks at, that may not have had trauma, may not have had a disordered attachment, um, but the experience of the drug in their brain right. creates um, an experience that most people don't have. And therefore, these are folks that often experience the drug as this is a good time and it's going to be a great time. The drug has changed my life in a way that it's really good. It's on. So it's not just here's a difficult situation and uh, and the drug or the behavior is going to make it tolerable. These are folks that experience a intensification of a good time. Yeah. Um, but for regardless of whether you had good attachment or regardless of whether you had early childhood trauma or not, the problems with attachment begin when someone has the disease of addiction and starts to use. Because now the attachment for the person who may not have had an attachment disorder becomes the attachment to this extreme experience that's going on in their head and that's the thing they want more than anything. That's right. Yeah. So so now since we're talking about addiction, I think it's important that we give the ASAM definition of addiction so we can all sort of know what what we mean, what we all mean when we use the word addiction. And that definition is it's a primary chronic disease of brain reward, motivation, memory, and related circuitry. Dysfunction in these circuits leads to characteristic biological, psychological, social, and spiritual manifestations. This is reflected in an individual pathologically pursuing reward and or relief by substance use and other behaviors. That's a really thrilling definition. You can tell I have quite a life. All these things <laughs> just thrill me to death when ASAM came out with this a few years ago because the very first phrasing that they used is brain reward and circuitry. Mm-hmm. And and everybody takes their nod from ASAM. So w- it's just that continued validation. This is a disease. This is a medical issue. You know, th- this is not a weak-willed issue. Right. And um, it's a primary disease. And it's it's primary. not right. there there may be complications by trauma and trauma certainly makes someone more vulnerable, yeah. but it is a primary disease. It is a disease that's going to happen to this person potentially if they have exposure to drugs and they have a situation that encourages continued use. So it's a primary disease. It is not a secondary coping mechanism gone wrong. Um, For people who have the disease of addiction, they have a genetic predisposition to this disease and things progress from there. What I think is so crucial when talking to a patient about both of these things, about yes, you've had a lot of issues in your life and you've had a lot of 
trauma that make it difficult for you to trust people. But you also have um, a reaction to alcohol that when you drink it, you want to drink more of it and you want to drink more of it and you don't know when you're going to stop. And so we're going to help with the the trauma stuff, but you still have to have abstinence right. because <laughs> every time you try to, to add alcohol back into the picture, the work we're doing over here is going to get dysregulated again. That's right. And so you can start to see the picture taking shape and developing. This is hard. It is. You know, yeah. This is hard work for us, but gosh, it's even harder for our patients. And it's not easy, and it's not for the faint of heart. And um, you know, <coughs> it requires a lot. But, and you know that their brain is trying to figure mm-hmm. out a way to continue to have that attachment, to be able to continue to drink or right. continue to use their substance in a way that's going to be socially acceptable and going to be normal and not going to create consequences. Um Mm-hmm. And so the acceptance that that's not going to be what this process is going to go to um, as we do the healing is is a big part of the primary work. Right. And as you guys both said, the the shift happens now because now they're attached to their drug or their destructive behavior. So that the attachment to that shows up in lots of ways from preoccupation, ritualization, but it also shows up limbically in their this this feeling and this belief that they will die if they yes. don't get it. So, you know, we're kind of fighting it. So CBT is really helpful, but it certainly cannot fight this alone. We can't just change the thinking. It's it's a very complex, multidimensional piece at this point. And they believe that if they don't get this, they're going to die. So we, it's a very sensitive process to try to, to go through mm-hmm. to help people get into recovery. And if they don't have the secure attachment, if they don't have um, the relationship with their early caregivers that gave them a sense of safety and security, then they are so much more vulnerable. They are so much more at risk for developing this unhealthy, addictive relationship with a substance or behavior. It's so... Um, it's so much more prevalent for these folks. And they are also struggling because they don't have the coping skills. They don't have the strategy or the network of family relationships. Um, yeah, they haven't created that all those years from zero to well, by the time somebody's starting to get into recovery, you know, 18, hopefully, 35, 40. But they haven't created years of these networks. And we go back to that word, those words we've used earlier around resiliency, you know, um, flexibility. They haven't had years of creating resiliency and flexibility in their coping skills or um, social networks, a good base of friends, a solid family, you know, pl- a spiritual life even, places where they can really go back to a secure base and, and pull from that. Um, they, without their substance. Without their substance, right. They don't have anywhere else to go, and they don't have this belief, even the neural networks, not there, that the world is a safe place. You know, that's that's not they, – they probably wouldn't verbalize that, but that's what they're feeling. Mm-hmm. And that's how their behavior right. um, plays out in their secrecy. Yeah. Um, I, I don't trust anyone enough to let them know what's really going on in my life. Mm-hmm. I don't trust 
the people who probably could help me and would help me if they knew. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't trust authority figures. I don't trust treatment professionals. I don't trust. I don't trust. And so that attachment, that one attachment to the thing that doesn't let them down Mm -hmm. um, becomes even stronger and they're attachment, even their peripheral attachments to people and places in their lives, those get, they get more and more isolated, more and more distant. Yeah. And then you start to see some of those attachment dynamics that we discussed start to play out. They, they'll come to you and then they'll go away. Or they'll come to you and they'll have a fight with you and then they'll go away. Or they'll, you know, they'll come to you and they'll be to want to be too connected to the therapy, but then they'll be mad. I mean, you really start to see those dynamics playing out. See that play out. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about attachment and the disease of addiction. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren. On Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. This is Dr. George. Join me Wednesday mornings for Medicine on Call and participate in a lively conversation. Learn what's happening behind the headlines in medicine. Understand Obamacare and learn how to protect yourself and navigate the system. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website 
located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is America's WebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back. This is Dr. Susan Blank and Detailing Addiction on America's Web Radio. I have with me my guest today, Alice Wellens, who is a licensed clinical social worker. Her practice is here in Atlanta, and she specializes in working with individuals, couples, and families who are struggling with not only the disease of addiction and how it affects their lives, but also other relationship issues. If you're interested in learning more about her practice, please check out her website at www www.alicealycewellens.com. So thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. So right before our break, we were talking about um, the lack of trust and the hyper-attachment that the person with the disease of addiction develops as their disease progresses. And so all other attachments, all other things that used to have value and meaning, their job, their career, their health, their family, sometimes even their freedom, uh, become secondary to the attachment that they develop to the substance or the behavior. And, um, and it becomes the it becomes the solution to everything. Unfortunately, the realization that it is the problem is not often <laughs> the first thing that patients um, will come to, to realize. And so um, this is a person who doesn't trust, and this is a person who doesn't often have coping skills and resources, and this is a person who has burned a lot of bridges. Mm-hmm. So they're in a lot of pain, and they're in a lot of trouble. Mm-hmm. They're really... Um they're really having to face the reality that this one thing that helped them feel normal and helped them be able to socialize and connect mm-hmm. with other people and have a peer group has has ceased working and and they don't have other coping systems in place or, or mm-hmm. things that they've they, they may, may feel attached to their as you said ritual mm-hmm. or to you know I can think of a lot of um, older alcoholics that are attached to their one chair in their man cave and and that's the only place in the world they feel safe and now that's not even safe um, and and so beginning to look at um, Accepting that they've got to change so many things other than just putting down the substance to be able to recover. It's a big paradox for them. You know, it's an intellectual paradox, an emotional paradox, and to some degree it's a, it's a like this biological survival paradox because they've gotten to this place where they they have to realize that the thing that they think Provided this regulation and this sense of normalcy is is the most dangerous thing in their life, and sometimes just listening to them, you know, start to, to get there, and you starting to work with them, getting there, can start to give you a nod to what some of their attachment issues may have been. Um, the thing that you needed the most was somehow unsafe. And so it can just start to kind of, you know, and sometimes you just tuck that in and that work might not ever get done, but you as the treatment person can start to think about, okay, this might be a nod to some of this earlier stuff that we might not get to, but it might inform the work in the sense of I now need to become the secure base, the therapist, the team, 
AA, the community, the psychiatrist, the CEO of the, of the treatment center, all these people become the secure base and the constant object to try to create a sense of safety for this person to go towards. It's, it's kind of a fascinating thing, it's a, and it's, a, it's, a, it's an honor and a huge responsibility on our part. Can you explain more about the phrase constant object for our listeners to, to what exactly you're talking about with that? Do you want to do that, or do you want me to do that? Go ahead. Okay. Well, you kind of um, referred to it earlier when you referred to the object relations theory. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, another British um, uh, group, but they, they, the constant object kind of goes along with some of the attachment, strange situation um, scenarios we were talking about. So when a baby is in a crib and the mother walks out of the room, the baby has no idea that the mother is ever going to come back, and that's terrifying. If this is not mm-hmm. conscious, it's biological survival of the species. And over time, what happens, or what we want to happen, is the baby eventually begins to realize the mother's gone, but the mother's going to come back. And that creates soothing, and that creates nurturing, and that creates safety. And then that gets, that gets sort of generalized out into the world. People go away, but they come back. You can have an internal sense of them. And you learn to soothe yourself by knowing Mm-hmm. These things and having these trusting, safe, safe relationships. People who didn't, who don't get that, the mother goes away and maybe doesn't come back, or the mother goes away and comes back and is hurtful or not attending. Um, they don't get a constant object, so people aren't safe to them. Places aren't safe. The world isn't safe. So being a constant object for a client, to me, where it boils down to like treatment and every day in my work is starting on time and ending on time, being very present when I'm in the room. Um, I really try to work on limbic resonance, which it, which is this sense of um, I try to regulate my central nervous system so I can be very present and calming with my client, help regulate their central nervous system. There's a lot of research that shows how important that is. Now, if anybody who knows me knows that can be a hard thing to do because I have a <laughs> lot of energy. <laughs> Um, but it's actually really good for me. Um, so that's kind of what I mean by constant object. Do you want to, is that about and right? I, yes, I think that's exactly right. And that is where the rituals that you see around AA, I think, can become the constant object. Mm-hmm. I hear patients roll their eyes. Oh, well, here we go. They're going to read how it works again. Mm-hmm. But it's those kinds of things. AA is at this building, this time, this is what happens all the meetings follow the same format. They start, they end, right. um, and they're going to be here, and they're going to be here this week, and they're going to be here next week. And that's um, that's one of the things that we have to work really hard with in understanding this is a chronic disease. Right. So it's not an episode of care. It's not you come in one time, we fix everything, and you go forth and do. So part of the work is to let the patient go when they need to go when they when it's too much and they need to back away for whatever reason but the idea if you're a have become a constant object they can come back to you they right. can come back and say okay it's not working i need some more help and so you're there you're going to not judge not Shame. Um, you, you'll question uh, what's happened. How can we help? But 
you allow them to come and go as you soothe them and then you allow them to go forth and do what they need to do understanding that this is a chronic illness and there is a chance that they'll be back to see you but you've left the door open and you are present and you are with them absolutely and i like you both used that term around the ritualization because that is one of the things that you hear people talk about is very um soothing to them are the rituals that they go through and and transferring that and I think part of what's so important with with addiction is that addiction creates secrets that people will begin to believe that if the secret comes out, the constant object's going to go away. Yeah. Um, and, and so confessing about a relapse and thinking I'm going to get kicked out, right? Like they would at a lot of treatment centers, where if they do something um, which is par for the course for addiction, they're going to get punished in a way that separates. Um, um, for a lot of people who've grown up with sexual identity issues, mm-hmm. they live with that constant fear of if I come out with this, the whole world's going to go away. Right. And, and so helping them to be able to walk through and trust that they can share their stories mm-hmm. and their secrets and not be um, rejected and abandoned. Absolutely. That's a great that's a great example, too, because this is a relapsing disease and shame is a huge barrier. So so having that experience of I've relapsed or I'm struggling or I'm in a long relapse right now, you know, and you having that sense of here's where I am and here's what I can do and here's how I care about what's happening and, you know, being the secure base and the constant object. And yet avoiding <laughs> avoiding being an enabler or exactly. allowing somebody to stay in an unsafe place. And so that's some of the work that you have to do as a therapist, as a treatment provider, um, as someone who's a sponsor working in this disease um, or, or with this population who has this disease. It, it is a constant balancing act of engagement, but allowing people the freedom to do what they need to do. And our tendency, my tendency, is I want to control it. I want to make it better. I want to help. I want to have the solution. And sometimes we just have to be. And that's a lot of our work. Uh, as one of my um, great mentors in, um, in my early psychiatric residency gave me an article that was called on being rather than doing in psychotherapy. So sometimes we just be. We're there. And we're here, and we will see you next week for part two of Addiction and Attachment Disorders. Thanks so much for listening. This is America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.